everyone for joining us. And, uh, and once again, thank you, Sabrina, for handling all the technical difficulties, uh, everything that comes with Zoom. Um, you know, as I was worshiping, um, you know, one of the things that comes to my mind is just how thankful are to be at a church like Lighthouse, and specifically like how, you know, it's kind of doing whatever they can to really encourage our church to just gather. Um, you know, ever since uh, COVID happened, we had a transition to Zoom meetings. And because we had to join, do Zoom, like, you know, we kind of come across with some difficulties with technology, with Zoom, things like that. But regardless of that, just really thankful for our church, just really uh, just trying to encourage our church to continue to gather together. And one of the things I'm also thankful for is you guys, is that regardless of the imperfections of Zoom, imperfections of technology and all the hiccups that we go through, that just uh, your willingness to really continue just to gather uh, uh, and to really, um, yeah, just be continue to be part of, part of the body. And so even though it's not the same in person. And so, um, yeah, so I'm just thankful for that in terms of just really making the most of this time together. Um, Having said that, um, let's go ahead and just dive into God's word. Um, so for those of you guys who don't know, my name is Daniel. And so I'm going to volunteer for Junior High's ministry and I had the privilege to share God's word. And we'll be continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. And before we begin with our passage this evening, I want to ask you this question. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? This is an important question for all of us, regardless if we've been a Christian for 10 years or for one day. But what you think about Jesus shapes how you respond to him. So if we see that Jesus is our savior and he died on a cross for our sin, then we would respond to him in faith. Or if we see that Jesus is holy, then we would take our sin seriously because our sin offends him. You know, if we see Jesus sovereign, then regardless of what we're going through, we can trust him because he knows what's best for us. Or if we see Jesus as not loving, then we would doubt if he ever does care about us. Or if we see Jesus as not powerful, then we would, we would not bring all of our challenges and difficulties to him because we think he is powerless to help us. So the question of who do you think Jesus is matters because it shapes how we respond to him. In the gospel, we're seeing Jesus' life and ministry. He's been preaching, proclaiming the gospel, performing miracles. And every time Mark shares about what Jesus has done, he reveals to the readers and to us about who Jesus is. At the same time, he also reveals to us how others responded to him. He allows us to see who Jesus is through the eyes of all of these other people. And we get to do that in a lot of different categories. And so as Jesus traveling and doing things, we get to see like, okay, there's this village and there's these people that contact Jesus and we see, what do they think about him? What do they think about Jesus? We also see some people start to follow Jesus and we get to see what does his disciples think about Jesus? And we encounter the religious teachers and leaders, authorities, we get to see what do these people think about Jesus? And today we get to look at a passage where we get, we go back to Jesus' hometown and we get to see what do people that grew up with him what do his friends and family think about Jesus? How do they see Jesus? And so as we watch Jesus in this book through the perspective of multitudes, we get to know him by their reactions. Are they amazed? Are they confused? 
Are they angry? And Mark's start storytelling is to push one single question to all of us. And it's the question of who do you think Jesus is? Now, some of us this evening may be in a place where we're saying, well, I've already accepted Jesus. I'm a believing Christian. So the question is not really important to me. And I want to challenge that assumption this evening as we look at this text, because I believe this question is very important to us all, to all of us, regardless of where we're at with Jesus this evening. You know, for those who do not consider yourself a Christian, I think this question could be the doorway through which you can find new life in Christ. And for those who consider yourself a Christian, the question that can be, this question can be uncomfortable one because it causes you to reflect and examine yourself of where you are with Jesus. But hear me out. The hope isn't so you feel guilty and bad, like, oh my gosh, I haven't been a faithful Christian. But really the hope is that you be honest with yourself about where you're at with Christ. And as you honestly examine yourself, this could be a doorway of a genuine faith and love and passion for Christ. So the question is, who do you think Jesus is? And this leads to our key idea is that God reveals himself through Christ so that we may believe in him. God reveals himself through Christ so that we may believe in him. So if you have Bibles with you, please turn with me to Mark chapter 6, verse 1 to 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 1 to 6. And as you make your way there, let me remind you through all of Mark's story. What we see is a theme of belief versus, versus unbelief. And everyone in each story that Mark introduces has this question facing them. And the response all varies. You know, some accept Jesus. Some people refuse to acknowledge him. And then in Mark, in, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus has been visiting a bunch of villages. And he eventually makes it back to his hometown. So starting in verse 1, it says this. He went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on a Sabbath, he began to teach in a synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom, wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this, this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to him, to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Let's pray for our time together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you speak to us this evening. Lord, all of us are in different places with you. You know, some of, some of us have been walking to you for a while, and some of us, it hasn't been that long. And for some of us, just barely know who you are. But Father, you love us. You love every single one of us. And you desire everyone to know you, to know your son, Jesus. And so I pray that as we go over this passage, that you would help examine ourselves to see where we are with you. And I pray that this could be a doorway to a new life in Christ and a newfound love for your son, Jesus. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to first break the story down a little bit. Here we have Jesus coming back home and he teaches to the people in synagogue and the reaction of his friends and family is very interesting because we see both sides of it. It starts out with amazement in verse two. They're like, wow, how's he doing these things? How does he teach these things? Where is this coming from? 
But then it turns to something different, doesn't it? I mean, look at verse three. They took offense at him. You see, it turns to anger. And a tone of her comments goes from incredulous to mocking. Like, who does he think he is? When I was uh, reading this, one of the things that come to my mind is a reunion. Uh, quick question. Any of you guys have been to a reunion before? You know, it can be a family reunion. It can be a, you know, a kindergarten reunion if, if there is such a thing. You know, it can be a small casual reunion with your you know, friends whom you haven't seen for a long time. Uh, for me, it was back in 2004, okay, about 17 years ago when I went back to my home church in San Jose, the church I grew up in. Now, to give you some context here, believe it or not, growing up in my home church, I was a pretty bad kid, okay? Not bad in the sense that I went to jail, but I was kind of a nightmare. You know, I was a kid that the children's ministry did not want. I was a kid who didn't pay attention in church. I was a kid who made my Sunday school teacher cry because I wouldn't stop goofing off. I was a kid who was always running around kicking stuff destroying stuff, stealing kids', kids toys. One time I pulled a girl's hair um, and I think she never came back to church since. And honestly, to be honest with you, I, didn't, I don't know why, what, my, what my problem was. You know, To this day, I still don't know why I, I acted the way I did. I just knew I was this kid who was a complete nightmare to everyone. Fast forward to when I was 17, my parents and I left our home church to go to another church. But by the time I was around 20 or 21, so six years later, I went back to my home church. And I remember when I decided to go back, I was going through some mixed emotions, right? On the one hand, I was excited to go back to my home church. But on the other hand, I was a little scared and timid, you know, because I was known as this kid who would make people's lives miserable. And so I tried to present myself to look like that I've matured, that I've grown up. You know, I would dress up in my Sunday school best. I would make sure I comb my hair. I would bring my hard copy Bible with me to show that everyone's still a Christian. On top of that, I would bring my devotional book just so I could make myself look more holy. Uh, on top of that, I would wear this wristband that says WWJD, which is what would Jesus do? Um, I don't think, so that was a trend back then. So I don't think people wear that anymore, but that was really cool back then. Um, so I did all that because I really want to show to everyone that I've changed. You know, that I was not the same person that I was before. And so when I finally stepped into the church building, I immediately recognized folks whom I haven't seen in a very long time. It felt like a reunion. So immediately I would say hi to them, introduce myself saying, hey, remember me? And I was being really friendly and being really nice. I was really trying to show that I've changed. But immediately people were like, hey, I know you. Weren't you that kid that made that Sunday school teacher cry? Weren't you that kid who stole that kid's toys? Weren't you that, the one who always made all those fart noises? Dude, remember when you did this and that? Basically, they saw through the facade. They knew who I was. And I get the impression that's a little bit where, where the people are coming from with Jesus. Because here, Jesus stands in front of them in a synagogue, and he shows that he's just not another, he's not just another boy that grew up, left, and has come back home. Now, we don't know what Jesus taught before taught because Mark doesn't say, but if we look through the gospels, most, like, most, like, most likely he is teaching about the kingdom of God, that he is the son of God, that he's the Messiah that the Old Testament had prophesied. And so when the people hear his teaching, they look at what he's doing and they are amazed. But then they start saying, no, we know who you are. We saw you grow up. We know your family. We know 
where you went to school. You can't pull that on us, Jesus. You're amongst people who you cannot fool. That's the kind of picture that we get. And the result is, this in the story, is that Jesus marvels at their unbelief. It doesn't say he understood their belief, unbelief. It doesn't say he empathized with their unbelief. It doesn't say he wrote it off and make excuses. No, it says he marveled at their unbelief. And so the first point I want to look at is that familiarity sucks out belief. Familiarity sucks out belief. One of the things uh, the Bible emphasizes a lot that presses on to Christians, to believers, is the importance of remembrance. For those of you who don't know, uh, I have a scar on the right side of my eye. So if you look closely, you can see my uh, scar on my right eye. So I got this scar when I was around three years old. And you can still see if you look closely. So what happened was one day my mom and I walked over to our neighbor's home, the neighbors that lived right across from us. And I remember for some reason, instead of walking, I decided to run. And I remember my mom telling me to slow down and to walk, but I did not listen. So I kept on running until I tripped over some unknown object and I landed at something really sharp, which cut the right side of my right eye. So luckily it didn't poke my eye because otherwise I'd be wearing an eye patch for the rest of my life. But here I was in pain, bleeding, and my mom was just scared and traumatized. And so my neighbors and my mom rushed me into the hospital. And I remember at that time being really scared, really traumatized, because here I was a three-year-old kid who, with a deep cut on my face while the doctors and nurses were trying their best to care for me. And I remember just crying my eyes out because I was just in so much pain. And by God's grace, the doctors stitched my wound up and I was ready to go back home. In that moment, that was a huge life-changing experience. But today, 34 years later, 34 years 34 years removed from all that. You know what I tell people all the time when they ask me about my scar? I would say, oh yeah, I fell and landed on something sharp when I was three, but the doctor stitched me back up, you know, so no big deal. You know, it's funny how we do that sometimes. There's a psychological term uh, for that. It's called normalization, okay? Normalization. I know it's a fancy word, but let me explain. It's the fact that things can be extraordinary and life-changing and, and just wild because, but as we become familiar with them, as we accept that as part of our normal 80, 80, everyday life, the extraordinary starts to become ordinary. The things that were wild and crazy out there now become mundane. You know, we see that in many parts of our lives. Think about a movie that you watched for the first time. You thought it was amazing, but after watching it multiple times, instead of being amazed by it, we're, we're instead kind of like, Eh, that's cool. Or we tried a food that was just amazing, like raising canes. And we think this is the best food ever. But after a while, it's not that big of a deal. And that normalization happens in our faith. You know, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter six, there's something that God was trying to tell his people, the people who had just been rescued as slaves from Egypt, the people who had seen the plagues, and the miracles worked by Moses, who had seen the sea apart. And you know what God warned them? Verse 12 says this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, then take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, God knows that it's part of our human nature to see miraculous works 
and to see God move and change our lives. And for us to, to gradually forget that was ever special in the first place. And so he says, take care, lest you forget the Lord. And the people in Jesus' hometown, they had normalized Jesus. They had found a way to look at him and see all the things that didn't fit with their mental picture of who he was. And they were able to just discard it and fit him back into that little box that he knew and understood. They normalized with that experience and in doing so, when he arrives with power and authority, they see him with eyes that have already become glazed and ears that are ceasing to listen. You know, you could probably imagine them saying things like, you know, that Jesus, he was kind of odd as a kid, right? You know, it's not surprising he's, he's come saying all this weird stuff. I mean, don't we know his family? I mean, look at them. They're all normal. Didn't see him grow up. Didn't we ask him to come over to our house and fix our door? Yeah, that's the Jesus that we know. The things that he's saying in synagogue, he's just out of his mind. And junior hires, I want to say that some of us have fallen into the same trap. You know, Jesus has come into your heart and we write him off as, as if he's just another familiar face. You know, we see Christianity as just something that our family does. You know, we've had neat experiences during BBS or at a retreat, and it was amazing. And we learned so much about Jesus, but we kind of grown out of it. See, sometimes we all allow our faith to seem so normal and familiar that we forget when we first taste it and see how great Jesus is. You know, we see something that can save us from the eternal punishment from hell and we ignore it because we think we've seen it before. This is a situation that is uh, dangerous for the unbeliever trying to find Jesus, but I do think it's even worse for those who have already accepted Jesus as our savior because you know, we experience his love. We've seen him work in our lives. You know, we've allowed it be, but we but we have allowed it to become like I dare say boring. I mean, think about this. Think about how many times on a sunny morning or on a Friday evening where we think about this, where we say to ourselves, oh, I've heard this message already. Oh, I've heard this story before. Oh, I sang that worship song already. Didn't we sing that song just last week? Can't we sing something else, something new? Or, oh, of course the answer is Jesus. I mean, who else would it be? And so we sing the songs, we listen quietly, repeat the same rituals over and over until it becomes another dull routine right next to going to school and brushing our teeth. I do want to be clear that I'm not saying to be a Christian is to have all these wild and exciting experiences in our lives. Sometimes being a Christian is learning to honor Christ in a day-to-day -day life to what may seem ordinary. But there is that danger when our faith becomes so familiar to the point that we forget that we've entered a relationship with the God who created the universe. That we forget that Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could be revived. If your faith has become familiar to you, I want to warn you this evening that you are trading a relationship with the living God for the trappings of a lifeless religion. You know, the reality is all of us have gone through those moments and all this will go through this where we feel stagnant in our faith, where our relationship becomes like whatever, when our faith becomes familiar. And it's during those moments, it's all the more important to remember the God that we worship, 
that we worship a God who wants us to know him and still does. In fact, that is why Jesus sent his son to die on a cross for our sins so that we can experience the greatest treasure of all. You see, uh, the greatest blessing that we have as Christians isn't that we have eternal life, although that's true and wonderful. It's not that we've been forgiven for our sins, although it's really awesome. But a grace, the greatest blessing that we have is God himself, that we have a relationship with the living God, the creator of the universe. Jesus says in John chapter 7, verse 3, he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. God sent Jesus to die on a cross for us and so that we can rec reconcile to God. But God also sent Jesus to die on a cross for us and so that we can know God. And I don't mean knowing facts and information about God, like knowing like one of your one, knowing facts about George Washington, for example, but truly know him. It's having a deep relationship with him and to be amazed by him. And so during those moments when our faith feels familiar or stagnant, be reminded that the God that we worship is the one who wants us to know him. Second point I want to look at in this story that I think is illustrated is that pride can kill our belief. Pride can kill our belief. You see, the people there, they're not just annoyed by Jesus. They are full on offended by Jesus when he shows up. And so while they're familiar with Jesus, I think, build them an alternate path that they can walk on. It's their pride that encourages them to choose it. And that's really hu is human nature. You know, you know, sometimes, you know, for us, we play games of comparison all the time. You know, we walk into a room or youth group and we kind of size people up and we think things like, oh, I wonder what grades they get. Oh, this person looks attractive and this person less so. I wonder what school they go to. Oh, I wonder how smart they are. I wonder how compassionate they are. Or I wonder how holy they are in church. You know, we're always keeping scores in this imaginary game that we call pride. And we think it's fun unless we're on the losing side of it. But we look around at people and for some reason, for, for some reason we're trying to find our self-worth by measuring ourselves up against everyone else. And so when the people see Jesus, their pride can't stand to see one of their own rising above the station they should have stayed in. You know, you have people in a small town and, and they've done the same thing their whole lives. They kept their occupations and, that their family has always done. They kept the same routine. And when, Jesus, and when they see Jesus in their mind, they're probably thinking, dude, here's this guy who he thinks he's better than the rest of us. You know, here's this guy who he thinks, you know, can step out of that box that he's supposed to stay in and do something different with his life. You know, why should his name be proclaimed and not ours? You know, his parents aren't special. His siblings aren't special. They've all stayed in their rightful place. You know, the change happens in verse three because the people start going, okay, on one hand, you know, where do these works come from? Look at his teaching he does. Look at these amazing things. And then all of a sudden they say, wait, isn't this the carpenter? You know, isn't this the son of Mary? Isn't this the brother and so-and-so? And aren't his sisters with us? Isn't this the kid that we all knew? I mean, who does he think he is? And they took offense at him. I think that's when the change happens. And so they took offense at Christ rather than crying out to him for mercy. See, the promissor that we waiting for reveals himself in his hometown. And the response was to push him away. For us, we don't have that same comparison with Jesus like the people in his hometown would have. 
just because, you know, our proximity to Christ is different. You know, he's not our neighbor that we knew growing up in Torrance or Gardena or Palos Verdes. You know, for us, I think pride creeps into our lives a little bit differently. But as at its core, we need to remember a saving response to the gospel is ultimately an act of humility. You know, it's a cry for help. It's an acknowledgement of helplessness. You know, when we're answering the question, who is Jesus to me? The difference between seeing him as Jesus as just a good moral teacher and as savior is the difference of pride. You know, we cannot respond to Jesus as our king if we refuse to take ourselves off the throne. You know, we cannot respond to Jesus as our Lord if we think life is about me. We cannot respond to Jesus as our savior if we think we can figure things out on our own. See, pride will tell us that we are good people. You know, pride will tell us that I'm not a bad person. Pride will say we do nice things. Pride will say we deserve heaven. You know, pride will say we don't need help. But humility, humility reminds us that our good works is nothing before a holy God. Even our best efforts is nothing before a holy God because it is tainted by sin. Humility reminds us that though we may try to do good, we will continue to fall short without the saving power of Christ Jesus. And this is a big reason why God is so lovingly harsh with Israel throughout the Old Testament. You always see the cycle of the people falling away from God, and then God has to smack them really hard to jolt them and get them back to where they're supposed to be. You know, it happens in a lot of different ways. But for them to turn to God in repentance, the first step every time is for God to break down their pride. And I really like the way God says it through the words of Obadiah chapter one. This is God talking to people. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar a lot aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. It was pride that hardened Pharaoh's heart before the signs of Moses. You know, it was pride that made Naaman angry when offered a cure for his leprosy. And it's pride that makes God the last person we call and the first person we blame when we encounter hardship in our lives. And so if you want our response to Christ to be running towards him, we must release our pride and come to Jesus in humility. In terms of application, I think one of the ways that we can grow in humility is being teachable, to have a heart that is teachable, to have a, have a heart that is willing to learn, to learn. You know, I talk about how easy it is for us to come to church on Sundays or Fridays and thinking that we've heard everything, that there's nothing new to learn that's all too familiar to us. See, the problem about being familiar with something, that it makes us unteachable. Because the moment we develop this attitude of, oh, I've heard this already, we've already made the assumption that we're not going to learn anything, that we're not going to get anything out of it. And, you know, and this can be the case for those who have grown up in a church or have been Christians for a long time. And what happens is when we start, we start to develop a sin of pride, where we think we have it all figured out, where we think there's nothing left for us to learn. And what happens is our hearts toward Jesus refuses, refuse to hear what Jesus has to say to us. You know, we're, we're telling Jesus that in our hearts that he has nothing left to say to us. 
because our hearts has grown so prideful. For myself, uh, I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, I didn't become a Christian until I was a senior in high school. And now that I've been a Christian for two decades now, so 20 years, I can tell you one of the most common challenges that I face as a Christian is thinking there's nothing more to learn about Jesus. Like I have Jesus all figured out. And that's where my pride kicks in, you know? But by God's grace, God showed me my prideful attitude. He humbled me by smacking me in the, right, right upside the head and made me realize that even though I've been a Christian for two decades, for 20 years, even though I read the Bible numerous of times, even though I heard about Jesus for the thousandth time, I'm still learning about him. I haven't graduated from knowing Jesus. I will always be learning about him. And the more I learn about him, the more I realize how truly amazing he is. And that's my hope for you, that you will continue to have a humble heart, a heart that is teachable, a hum heart that's humble and open to Christ. Third point, and the final point is this, is that God responds to our belief. God responds to our belief. For the townspeople, they couldn't believe that Jesus was more than ordinary. And we see in the last verse that Jesus himself was amazed, that he was astonished. At what? At the people's unbelief. If you look at back at verse 5, we see what happens when the people did not believe in Jesus. It says in verse 5, it says that he could do no mighty works there. Now, this doesn't mean Jesus was robbed from his power because of the townspeople's unbelief. Because we do see later in verse 5 that he laid his hands on a few sick people. Now, let's unpack that for a second. You know, it wasn't because suddenly Jesus went to Nazareth that Jesus lost all of his powers. It's not saying he isn't capable of ruling power. It's not saying that his power was taken away by the townspeople's unbelief. What is saying that he could not do many miracles there and still be true to his mission. In other words, Jesus was not interested in being a traveling healer. You know, he never went to a town and say, here, I'm here, I'm, I'm here, bring me your sick and I want to heal them. His ultimate goal wherever he went, that people might repent and believe. You know, if you look back at Mark chapter 1, verse 15, we see a summary of Jesus' mission, which says, the time has fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, part of the demonstration of the gospel was that he had compassion on people, and he healed them. He casted out demons. So don't hear me say that he did not, he only did miracles if they had faith in him. But his ultimate aim was not to meet felt needs. He, was trying to put, he wasn't trying to put on a show for unbelieving people. Now, this is very interesting, that Jesus would be surprised by unbelief. You know, because think about it. He had to do it every day in his life. So it's not that he was surprised that they were not believers. It wasn't, it wasn't that he was surprised by the people not coming to faith in him. He was surprised because they have every reason to believe and yet they don't believe. See, the problem was they did not have enough information about Jesus. In fact, they were given all that they needed to know and to respond in faith. Maybe even more information about Jesus than some who did respond in faith. They had a front row seat in Jesus' life, but yet they don't believe. For some of you, um, you've grown up in a church. You've probably grown up in a Christian family. You've heard many sermons. You're probably familiar with the stories from children's ministry, you've heard many great teachings. You probably know the answers to some of the small group questions. 
and you probably heard the gospel many times, but for some of you've never placed in your son, Jesus, you've never trusted in Jesus. And if that's the case for you, my question to you is this, what's holding you back? What's preventing you from trusting in Jesus? You know, for those of us who are Christians, you know, for those who place their faith in Jesus, if we're honest, we too live a life of unbelief. You know, whether we've been a Christian for a few weeks or a long time, we too struggle to trust Jesus. In fact, we struggle to trust Jesus more often than we think. I mean, think of an area in your life that you're struggling to trust Jesus with. I mean, are you struggling to trust him when you go through difficult times? Are you struggling to believe that Jesus knows what's best for you? Are you starting to trust Jesus with your grades and your test scores? Are you starting to believe that Jesus does, does truly forgive your sin, especially that particular sin you're struggling with? Are you starting to believe that your non-Christian friends will ever come to faith? What is an area of your life that you're struggling to trust Jesus in? The good news is that Jesus is the author and perfecter, perfecter of our faith. And because he is the author and perfecter of our faith, we can come to him just as we are. We don't need to come to him with our great faith or be free of doubts. We can come to him just as we are. Sinners who are struggling, sinners who are broken, sinners who are struggling to believe. We're not saved by how strong our belief is, but we're saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Our faith is not based on how strong our faith is, but it's based on Jesus who is the object of our faith. He's the one who begins your faith in him, and he's the one who will continue to strengthen your faith. So let's bring our struggles of unbelief to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. I'll close with this. You know, in the beginning, we talked about how we see Jesus shapes how we respond to him. And my question to you is this, who do you think Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? How you see Jesus shapes how you respond to him. My hope today that you hear that question with new ears, and that's a question you take seriously. You know, for some of you, this could be your very first step into a brand new life, knowing that God loves you. And for some of us, that question may be, we haven't asked ourselves in a very long time. And it's a chance for us to look inward, and this could lead you to a more deeper and more genuine love for Christ. You know, it's kind of like doing a regular physical checkup. You know, where we go to the doctor to find out our, our, our you know, physical health. In the same way as Christians, we are to do a spiritual checkup to examine our spiritual health. And this isn't something that we just do on our own, but instead we get to do it together as a community. And so I'm gonna encourage you in your small group discussions, share with your small group, to share with your small group leader about where are you with Jesus? Where are you at with Jesus these days? You know, how is your relationship with Jesus these days? Are you close to him? Do you feel distant from him? Do you believe in him? Do you not believe in him? What is it about Jesus that you're struggling with? You know, oftentimes in our small group, it's easy for us to talk about how our week has been and what we did at school. And I'm not saying those are bad things to talk about, but rarely we, we, do we talk about where we are at with Jesus. How are we doing with Jesus? And the hope is that this would be a time for you to share to share honestly, you know, to honestly share, where are you struggling to trust Jesus? To honestly share your doubts about Jesus. But the hope is that you would invite your small group to come alongside you 
to encourage you, to challenge you as you continue to grow in your faith. Ultimately, the hope is that this sets you on a doorway to a greater faith, love, and passion for Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word this evening. And um, God, we see the, the townspeople who know uh, Jesus, but don't really know him. And there are some of us this evening here that, that, they, know, that they know stuff about you, Lord. They know facts about you, but they don't really, really know you. And for some of us here, you know, know a lot about you who have come to church for a long time, but have never trusted you. And there are for some of us here who genuinely wants to know you, but are struggling. But God, um, we thank you that you do love every single one of us and that you desire all of us to, to know you, Lord. And that's why you send your son, Jesus, to die on a cross for us. And so that we can not just know you, Lord, but really know you. God, we also pray that you will help really examine our hearts and examine our lives. Just really ask ourselves, honestly, where are we with you, Lord? Where are we honestly? And God, we pray that during our small group discussion, it'll be a great time of just sharing, Lord, sharing honestly, Lord. But it's also a time where we can encourage each other, support each other, challenge each other, and point each other to your son, Jesus. God, we thank you for this time. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right.